Hey, White Girl Awakening community. This is Jen Barnes, founder of White Girl Awakening. And I just wanna say thank you for showing up. We know that this journey of awakening can take some true bravery to enter into some discomfort and learn and grow together. If you haven't already found us on Facebook and Instagram, I wanna encourage you to enter into that community. You can find us at White Girl Awakening. And you can also come and check out our blog at www.whitegirlawakening.com. I wanna welcome you officially to our White Girl Awakening sessions, where women from all different backgrounds are committing to a spirit of curiosity towards one another, a posture of welcome, and adopting a lifestyle of awakening to ourselves, God, and one another. We've created these sessions for white women to lean in and learn from people of color because we believe they are the best ones to teach us and more importantly, lead us into a greater understanding of who they are and how they experience and view the world. I believe God is calling his people to come closer and bridge the gaps that have been severed far too long in this nation. I believe he has uniquely graced this generation to heal ancient wounds of division. And he is elevating that great commandment he left us with to the surface of his people's hearts, to love one another as he has loved us. And we cannot love one another if we aren't coming into a full understanding of who the other is. I claim Ephesians 4 over this session, that we will attain to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ as we learn together in complete humility and gentleness, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So as we lean in and learn tonight, let's remember that love believes all things and it believes the best. If you hear something that's hard to believe tonight, I want to encourage you not to harden your heart to what someone else is saying is a true reality for them. I've heard it said that perception is reality, but there are different perceptions for different people, and therefore there can be different realities. Life is not as cut and dry as we'd like for it to be, and I realize that may mean it doesn't feel as safe as we'd always like for it to feel. Tonight, we have the opportunity to love without any borders around our hearts. Let's be brave enough to allow people to be where they are, who they are, and to meet them there. Enter in and stay a while. Welcome White Girl Awakening audience. Thank you for tuning in to our first awakening session of 2021. This is actually pre-recorded. So in actuality, this is New Year's Eve Eve, and I'm sitting in my office in Atlanta, just kind of dreaming and hoping for um, what we might be able to accomplish together this year if we all adopt this spirit of curiosity and lean into a journey of awakening together. So I just want to thank you for tuning in. Um, we're going to talk about real love today. You guys have probably already seen um, the the cute Boggin giveaway that we had earlier in the month. If you haven't checked out the White Girl Awakening Collective, please, this is a, a, a group that we've created for you to engage deeper, for us to interact with you. We want to know more of your journey. Um, we want to learn from you um, about what you're learning from others and how this journey of awakening is deepening your life and your, the relationships um, that you already had and maybe that you have acquired. But um, I've just been thinking as we get to um, just begin this awakening journey, um, just want to let you know where my mind and heart has been. I've been meditating on where we've been this year. And 2020 has been a really tense filled year. Um, I think it's been difficult for a lot of people um, and I think that it's healthy to acknowledge that we have experienced some collective traumas together as a people. Um, and I, I also think that it has really provided this opportunity for the body of Christ to engage in a healing that's needed to take place for a really long time, because some of the things that have resurfaced um, have been there for a really long time. Um, they've just risen again in, um, and manifested 
um, in some more obvious ways, especially to the white community. So that's the whole heart behind this is um, let's, let's heal together um, through awakening to one another, um, which essentially is, is equating to loving one another well by knowing and being known by each other. This is the Jesus model. Um, and as I've been thinking about this year, I came across a prayer um, this morning that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. wrote. Um, or he didn't write it. He spoke it right before he preached a sermon at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery. Um, and it was a sermon on loving your enemies. And the prayer says, oh God, help us in our lives and in all of our attitudes to work out this controlling force of love this controlling power that can solve every problem that we confront in all areas. And I just feel like in the messiness of life, sometimes we can really um, jump right into all the rhetoric and sensationalism, some of those things we've already talked about, and, um, and lose hope that there is this powerful force of love that we can choose to tap into. Um, and rise above all of the other noise. And so tonight, we're just going to, that's what we're going to dive in and talk about. What does real love look like? What's the definition? How does it manifest itself? Because that's really what we're needing here in, in this day and in this time. So I have two guests that has have demonstrated in my life um, this idea of what love really looks like. What How is it really demonstrated? Um, who have actually also just contributed to my awakening journey, probably more than anyone else. Um, the first guest, his name is Sam Collier. Outside of being just an amazing friend, um, he is a TV show podcast host. Um, he does more things than I could actually name. Um, and he is also, hey Sam, most excited, what I'm most excited about, launching Hillsong Atlanta. Yeah, and I just couldn't be more more excited, more proud of you. Thank you for um, joining in tonight. Uh, I think this is going to be a really good conversation. Such an honor. Uh, the other way around. <laughs> <laughs> um, our other guest is Reggie Joiner. He is the founder of an organization called Orange. He also was co-founder of a church you may have heard of. Uh, North Point Community Church alongside Andy Stanley. He did some amazing things with their environments and um, their middle, high school, um, preschool environments and family environments. And that kind of spun off into this huge now organization that has impacted um, so many um, young people throughout the past several decades. So thank you, Reggie, for being a part of this. It's good to be here. Thanks for letting me come. <laughs> uh, we're all friends. And so part of the, these awakening sessions have, have just been about how we rub, rub off on each other and sharpen one another in relationship. And that's part of this awakening journey. Um, so I just thank you for both of you engaging deeper in this posture of curiosity towards <laughs> one another. Um, that, that's kind of how we refer to it, leaning in to those who are different and just having open hearts to receive who you are, who I am straight from the source. Um, Sam, we met <laughs> about 10 years ago. It's been 10 years. Yes. Yeah, Can you believe it? I remember. Um, was Sam in middle school then? What, what, what was Sam 10 years ago? He, he was barely out of high school. This is what he does. You, you keep your jokes in. <laughs> you know, I, I have to be honest. I, I'm trying to imagine you 10 years ago. I, I just have to go there mentally. It's like, yeah. <laughs> 10 years ago, I was 22. Wow. And I remember the day we met. And it's interesting that we're talking about this, you know, white girl awakening journey, you know, diving into conversations and being curious about people from a different background because me and you were sitting next to each other at the same Salute to Greatness dinner that me and Reggie went to almost three or four years after that. It's so interesting that we all kind of culminated this dinner and me and you were at this table and didn't know anybody at the table. And yeah. we were sitting next to each other going, 
who, who am I going to talk to? And you said, hey, I said, hey, and, and then we talked the rest of the night. Well, you talked to everybody. Yeah, um, I'm sure. So you did. Yeah. He just carried the conversation. But that was the beginning of my journey. Yeah. And you've been a part of it this whole time. You, there are pieces of you just interwoven, Sam. You've been such a patient teacher in a lot of ways. And um, I wanted to hear from you because I think how diverse was your life before you met me that night? Wow. Um, no, it wasn't. <laughs> yeah, it's almost like this thing was happening that we weren't even trying to do. And it wasn't you and me. It was just like God's been doing this thing. Yeah. Over the last, I don't know. I, for me, it's been about 10 years where he's saying, get curious about one another. I would say the same. Yeah, because that was right around the time when I met Chris Green. And he was it. the first white friend and you were kind of the second. And I mean, it was just like. Oh, what, 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 what number friend was I? What number white <laughs> friend was I? All right. By the time I met you, I had been all throughout North Point, And so it was a lot of white people. He was ready. <laughs> but if you ask me the, the, the caliber of friends. Oh, Ow. wow. We're getting the top five, top three. Yeah. So that was <laughs> that, that's at his finest right there. The way he spun that, that was that was him at his finest. <laughs> that was that was great. Yeah. But Sam, on this topic of real love, I asked you that how diverse your life was because you had come from a large black church. Yep. And like that traditional black church atmosphere. Yeah. And you entered into the North Point world. Yeah, yeah, which which is the polar opposite, the, the opposite end of the city. You went from the, the lower end of the perimeter all the way to the top end of the perimeter in Atlanta. Right. We're kind of like this circle. Right. And demographically, that's kind of a, a split line of predominantly uh, people of color on the lower end. And then it's getting a little more diverse on the top end of the perimeter. But talk a little bit. I've heard you tell this story around coming from um <laughs> serving people in one community to serving um, people in another community. Talk a little bit about that story. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I, I will, I will say to your point, walking into a North Point church and that it's interesting. It was, but it was the Buckhead location. And I just remember feeling like I walked into a completely different world in Georgia. It was like, you know, you, you watch some of the movies where the kids go into the closets and then they end up in some foreign world. And you're like, what's going on? Magicians are coming out. That's how I felt. I said, where did this world come from? I didn't even know that this world existed in the same Atlanta that I lived in. Wow. And so for me, it really was a massive culture shock just because I had no idea where all these white people came from. <laughs> <laughs> that was the biggest thing. I was like, Man, it's a lot of white people in Georgia. How have I gone my entire life not seen? I'm like, where do y'all live? What do you eat? What do you listen to? Where are you hanging out? Then I, I won't, I won't jump. But then I found out about coming, where kind of orange. I was like, where is coming? I just remember 400 just went and then it ended, and I was like, where are we at? You know, I was like. 400 has an end. I mean, we're just talking about like I've never been in this direction. And so it, it really was for me beyond, you know, the, the I guess the racial dynamics. It, I was just fascinated that there was another world that existed within the world that I was in that I had no idea about. And I was very curious. I go back to kind of that dinner that me and you kind of sat and met each other at, because I think at that dinner there was, and you said this earlier, a curiosity in me just to know good people. And a lot of that came from my parents. Um, while I didn't grow up around white people and didn't have any white friends, you know, I always say my parents, it, it was, they made it illegal to not be nice to people. Mm, anybody. Right. If we weren't nice to somebody, it was a problem. I mean, it's, what are you doing? Get your act together. You know, it's like, okay, okay. I had a bad day. Who cares, right? They don't know you had a bad day. So I think that general disposition of going, man, this is, I'm curious. This is something new. This is exciting. Um, was the spirit I kind of took into North Point. And I think it allowed for me, again, to make my first white friend, Chris, right around the same time me and you were becoming friends and then going on this journey 
of learning about a new world, eventually submitting myself to the culture, not from a control perspective, but just from a, hey, if I'm going to minister effectively to a new demographic, I have mm-hmm. to submit myself to learning about them. That's and, really good. You know, that's one of the things that, and I won't jump ahead, but I'll end here. That's one of the things that I think, you know, whenever I'm talking about race and teaching on race or consulting, I always reference my journey of how as a black man, I had to learn white people and come down and humble myself to go, hey, what are the issues of the white context that I don't even know about? Because the reality is we all have different issues, right? We're living in a simple world. We're coming from different places. And so after submitting myself to that, learning how to become effective, um, and I try to flip it on its head and say, we have to do the same. So that's a little bit about my journey. I'll go deeper if you ask, but I don't, I don't want to. Yes, I, I do want to go deeper. I have as we, I always have when we talk like a hundred questions um, that just came up, but I think one of the most important things that you just demonstrated is it's a real reality in our nation that we've grown up pretty separately in a lot of areas. And there's this vast unknowing of one another Mm. that has led to some major tension points of misunderstanding. Um, And I really, the more I've walked this journey, have followed it, the root of it, to this more of this unknowing than anything else. Yeah. These, this friction we've really seen this, this last year come to the surface again. So I've been there. Um, but I, uh, gosh, I mean, that's just so important. And then Reggie, <laughs> I, I think I've only known you like three years or four well, it years. It feels like 10. I know, but it does feel like 10. Sam yeah. introduced us. Yeah. Sam well, introduced us. We had to have we had to have you know each other to translate Sam's you know conversations sometimes so that <laughs> you could ask me what did Sam mean and I could ask you what did Sam mean and it took and us then both. Sam could ask me what you meant. Hey, absolutely, <laughs> Sam will call you and go, "What do you think Reggie meant then?" And then I'll call Sam and go, well, "You know, I talked to Jen. I'm not sure." So it, I think it took the three of us ultimately to navigate some of these waters. Yeah, yeah. but that's another element of this journey is this this cultural learning of one another that sometimes occurs. So it's funny to laugh about, but it's real to you sometimes too. Well, it really is. I think, I think you need the kind of friendship where there's a lot of safety and you can process with each other. There's nothing more valuable in this type of a journey than to have people that, you know, you can misstep in front of, and they can help you translate and understand and interpret um, each other. I mean, I, I think that's part of empathy, which really, if there's a word that I think translates real love into, it is the idea of empathy. Because empathy requires that I pause who I am, which is exactly what Sam explained a while ago in his illustration. I pause who I am, what I think, how I feel my opinions long enough to understand someone else's story and world and experience and opinions, because until I can understand you that way, I can't expect to be understood by you. So there's that, there's that in this. And I, I think, you know, the issue with real love, and I know that's what we're talking about is the word love is so overused. Sometimes it gets lost in the essence of what it really should mean. And when, you know, we are compelled by the great commandment to love God and to love our neighbors ourselves. But even loving your neighbor, we, we forget that that means I respect my neighbor. That means I understand and learn about my neighbor. That means I trust my neighbor. I mean, there, there's so many layers to that that are specific and practical and applicable. It's easy sometimes to say, love your neighbor. It's not as, e- not as easy to say, respect and listen to my neighbor. I mean, that's different. Yeah. yeah. And Dr. King also, and Sam has studied him a good bit too. And Reggie, I know you have um, this love for history, um, but he talked about love being this powerful force that wasn't sentimental or anemic. Yeah. This, that, that's what the language that he used, um, but that it was accompanied with action. And I was writing a little bit, getting prepared for what we're some of the things we're launching later 
um, and meditating on Ephesians 2.13 today, where Christ demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still sinners, he died for us. There's so much depth in that. Um, But there was a, a point to state that he demonstrated his love. It wasn't a feeling or a, a sentiment. Um, but Reggie, you, I think you and I have probably spent probably literally no less than a hundred hours mm-hmm. talking about Sam. Talk about Sam. hundred hours talking about Sam. Because <laughs> yeah, yeah. there's, there's nothing else to talk about. It's <laughs> Sam. No. Um, but the area of racial, racial healing and the need for the church to, um, engage, continue to engage, um, that journey. And it seems like you have just really leaned in, um, deeply to this journey. What, what has compelled you to do this? You know, it's it's hard. Go ahead, Sam. Go ahead. You're, you're I, want know, I want to know the answer to this. So that, I mean, we I've heard him talk about it, but I'm so honored and excited to hear this answer. Well, I I, I think you have to. It's like it's like other things that are constructed in your life. If you ask what was the moment, there were multiple moments. That, that there isn't one defining moment. I mean, I could go back in time to when I was an eight-year-old and I was living in Memphis, Tennessee, and I was getting baptized in a church that was in a neighborhood that was transitioning. And I got baptized right next to a young black kid that was my age that I was friends with. And so there were the two of us getting baptized at the same time. I don't think I, at the time, realized that there was the racial you know, tension that existed as a kid. Because I mean, I, my friends were my friends. And and then, you know, I, I could fast forward to when I was in ministry in a church in the South and we had invited a black pastor to come speak, thought it was fine. And all these men who had mentored me, who were kind of my leaders, because I was, you know, in my young 20s, called a deacon's meeting until midnight. And they were upset that a black man was going to be speaking in this church in the South that I was a student pastor in. And, and I saw a part of these leaders that I had a lot of respect for that I'd never even realized existed in, in their mindset, you know, toward, you know, black people or, to, or toward, you know, that issue. And it, and it kind of shocked my system. And I was trying as a young leader to reconcile what I knew the New Testament said. And then, you know, you, you fast forward in all these different defining moments, but there was this one moment about, oh gosh, several years ago, you were there, Sam, and we were on tour. We, we had, you know, we have always have a number of different speakers who are communicating. And I was in a room and I heard, I forget what shooting had happened, but I heard Virginia Ward on the phone and she said, yeah, I'll skip our meeting and I'll come eat dinner. And so when she got off the phone and she's a, she's an African-American professor in Boston, uh, I said, where are you going? And she said, well, I'm going to meet with some friends and talk about what just happened. And I said, well, can I go? And there was this pause where I could tell she didn't really want me to go because she was kind of going with her people and she wanted Sam was going to be there and there was going to be this conversation, which made me more intrigued because I didn't want to miss out. Yeah. I remember when I walked into the restaurant with Sam in Virginia, the other people at the table just looked and went, why is he here? <laughs> and I, and I remember sitting down and I could feel it. You know what? I could feel, yeah. I could feel the tension. And I remember saying, okay, guys, just pretend that I'm not here and have the conversation that you would normally have. And um, they actually did about 15 minutes into the conversation. I go, I really am here. Okay. Don't forget. I really am here. And that's when Sean Watkins said to me, and I, this is just this defining moment. He said, Reggie, we know you're not a racist, but sometimes we need to know that you're Mm anti-racist. And I think that became the question, Mm. not yes or no. Are you racist or not racist? Because you know, everybody can can somehow rationalize that away. The question for me became, how anti-racist am I? Or how racist am I? And, and, I, and I think as I started wrestling with that, I realized that I, I needed to, to pivot. I needed to make a shift and change because I have responsibilities with so many leaders and so many people that invest in our world and our life. And I just thought, 
you know, I decided then we'll never do another tour stop. We'll never do another conference that we don't talk about this issue because it still exists and we need to talk about it. So again, multiple defining moments yeah. in my life. I, I could keep going, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I have a long list Correct. of that. Some of them are similar and um, you know, some of them, I just think you would really have to be trying to ignore some tension if you were raised in the South and never felt it, you know, you, you would have had to bury it mm -hmm. for so long that you, you didn't feel it. Or you, or you just live in proximity to a certain group of people that think like you think, and we self-select people like we are. So yeah. we don't know it exists. You know, yeah. the illustration that Sam gave of walking into a church that was all white, you know, I've experienced walking into rooms with people and I was the only white guy there. And, and I, again, that reality mm -hmm. made me realize that there's a different version of America. There's a different version of church. There's a different version of community than I've experienced. And, and we need to kind of embrace that. If again, we're going to demonstrate what real love is and what it means to really care about our neighbor. But what do you think is at stake if we don't? Hmm. This is really a question for both of you. Yeah, I'll let I've been talking. I'll let Sam lead and I'll, I'll jump in. <laughs> um, I have a lot of thoughts. Um, I mean, like you said, Jen, even after me, you had questions after Reggie's story. I mean, I've just got so many thoughts, questions. Well, jump in. But I think what's at stake is what has always been at stake. And that's a better world, you know, and um, a peaceful world, a the gospel. I mean, <laughs> We could go down the list of so many things that are at stake when separation is present. Um, I think something that Reggie said, and this is going to get a little bit into the weeds of, okay, if, if it is at stake, because I think a lot of people would cognitively say that, they're, that they can recognize what's at stake, right? For years, we can, we can look at the riots and we can look at the protests and we can look at the political unrest and all of these things and go, this is what's happening right now is what's at stake, right? It's like, we, we cannot get along. We, let's just go ahead and go there. We're fighting each other. We're cursing each other out, right? We feel like we feel like we have to take sides. I mean, this past summer, you felt like you had to take a side. Yeah. And like there was nowhere you could stand. It was like, okay, now I'm being called to the carpet at one of the most tumultuous times in the history of our lifetime. And I have to choose what side of history I'm gonna stand on. And you felt this crazy, it, some, many of us felt that way in the polls this year, right? Like when you went yeah. to poll, it was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> so, so again, it speaks to more of what's at stake. But I think beyond that, to your, to your point, and this is back to some Reggie said that I had so much to think about is, if we know so much is at stake, then how come we haven't solved it? And what are, are, are some of the biggest barriers that have stood in place? And I think, and I wanna speak from, uh, from, the, from a humble place of what happened to me. And I think that a lot of African-Americans and people doing justice work need to go down this road just to have context. Dr. King always talked about, you know, the first step, and you know this, Jan and, and Reggie, you know, that the first step to Kenyan nonviolence is information gap. Before yeah. you try to solve the problem, in other words, do you see every side of the issue? Do you understand what's going on in the white context, from the black context, and Hispanic? So, so anyway, so as I went down this road to learn about um, the plight, and that sounds kind of wild, right? Of, of <laughs> white, <laughs> of the white individual, Reggie said something that I thought about. I said, "Man, this is it." He said, "You know, are you anti-racist?" is that we know you're not racist, but are you anti-racist? And one of the things that has really gripped my heart in this work of racial reconciliation is understanding the extreme and volatile nature and aggressive nature that a white person that has grown up in the South or in a racist family has to go has to go through what they have to go through to actually get to the point where they're now, like, let's just say it this way, standing on the right side of history. Mm. Because when, when many of my white friends have heard 
you know, are you anti-racist? Some of them think, well, uh, am I anti my uncle? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's like for me to be anti-racist, I have to be anti my granddad. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so you're now asking me, and I get it, but I mean, when you just take yourself through that journey psychologically, you start to understand, you know, Dr. King always talked about how racism was a sickness for all of us, right? The, the racist and the non-racist, it's a sickness that impacts all. Of, and that's some of the results of the sickness that you as a white individual have to now think about people that raised you and you have to figure out how to navigate being against what they're for and yet still for them and still love them but create a sense of self. And that's some of the journey, right? That anyway, go ahead. Y'all know no, that's it. You're, you're, you're breaking down the formula of an element of what this real love looks like. Yeah. And when you were talking about feeling like this whole year, it's felt like we needed to choose a side. Yeah. And if you're doing this work that we're in, we've had all three of us individually and collectively have had some tense conversations this year in the middle, not feeling like any side was worth grabbing onto because it was going to put relationship at stake. You know, when I'm not talking about right or wrong, I'm talking about, you know, political here, political there. Yeah. Um, there's, there is certainly a definition of right or wrong in terms of being on the right side of history. Right. Um, but I think there have been some times this year and there's this emerging culture developing where there's a line drawn in the sand and you have to be all here, or all there. And it just seems really dangerous to me when what real love actually begins to do is dissect. And Reggie, I think you said this to me the other day, we were talking about something else, but you said, no person is just one thing. And that's been part of this journey for me is saying, I've had some people that I really love who I will always love teach me some things that are really wrong. Mm -hmm. mm. And, and I'm going to choose to find a way. And it is a, like a literal exercise that has to take place in your heart to continue to love that individual and not judge them, but not no longer settle for what I was taught in my life because that has no place in my heart anymore. They have a place in my heart, but the wrong that I was taught does not. <laughs> that's, go, ahead. go ahead, go ahead. Well, Reggie, that's when some of my faith construct was challenged. Right. Have you had anything like that? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I think I, I have two lists that I keep. A list of people that taught me and shaped my values and my faith for my first 30 years. And then a list of people that taught me and shaped my faith the last 30 years. Mm. I'm both of you. So when I look at those lists, one list was by far a certain mindset of a white conservative Christian theologian man. And, and that was most of my first list. My second list list looks vastly different. And, and I think when the second list of leaders tell me racism is real, even though the first list of leaders never really acknowledged the racism issue, I don't know how to, you know, look at that list, that second list and say you're wrong because it doesn't because they never told me it was mm. because it's reality for them. And when the Darius Daniels and the you know, Sam Colliers and the Tasha Morrison's and the and I could go down the list of, of all these friends of mine when they say this is what I experienced. Then I'm not the person to say that isn't true and that isn't real. That doesn't happen because it happened to them and it's real. And, and for me, it's leaning into that and learning that. And, and the thing that's happening, I think, in our country, when you ask the question, what's at stake, is I think it's, and I, and I don't want to be overdramatic, but I really do think it's the faith of a generation who can't do what you just did in that moment. Because what you just did in that moment is you said, I can believe some of what they told me, but that doesn't mean everything they said was right. 
there are actually some, some things they taught me that might not be right that are wrong because there's another perspective and another prism to look at the world at through here, through, through this side. And if I don't see that, I'm missing an entire part of yeah. what faith is. So what's at stake in my mind is faith, faith of a generation yeah. Because they don't want a version of faith that is one dimensional. They want a version of faith that actually demonstrates real love. They want a version of faith that does what Paul actually said in 1 Corinthians. And the powerful thing about 1 Corinthians 13 is Paul goes through this list and he says, it doesn't matter if you can prophesy. It doesn't matter if you create and solve needs and problems in your culture. It doesn't matter if you're a great communicator, a great preacher. If you don't have love, mm. none of that matters. And he comes to the end of the passage, and we miss this. He comes to the end of the passage, and he says, these three things remain, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. Now, for me, I have been in churches that had faith without love. I've listened to messages that tried to give hope without love. Wow. The thing about it is Faith and hope both are best understood in the context of a true, real, loving relationship. Without that, there is no real faith. There is no real hope. So somewhere in the context of the question, what's at stake, is I really do think there's a generation going, I don't want that version of the church. I don't want that version of faith. I don't want that version of Christianity. Unless there's real love there that is willing to demonstrate the hard work of caring about the people around me. So, I mean, that's, that's how I would kind of unpack that. I think you just said it all. <laughs> yeah. and I, I really hope that a lot of our audience gets to hear what you just said, because I was in a wilderness for a long time doing this work, feeling like, is there a leader I can go to who is saying the things that I need to hear out loud that are going on in my head, not because I need to be validated on the inside, but because I know something is true that isn't being addressed and that there's a problem that we need to help solve. Um, and I just feel so alone in it. Yeah. And, um, I really hope that our audience got a lot out of what you just said, because you have really restored a lot of hope within me for the, within leadership within the church, yeah. the church that I literally felt like I, I didn't have a place in anymore because as far as the white community goes, the, the community that I was engaged in, they just weren't addressing it in a hands and feet kind of way. I, you know, I, I think I want to say one more thing because I, I feel like you started this conversation talking about the posture of curiosity and, and Sam talked about starting off with getting the information you need. Um, if, if, I, if I had to say anything at all about what I think would be an important step for white people watching this, mm. I know you, you guys talk about this all the time, especially white leaders like me who we've struggled through the years with so many different things. And I, I am, you know, I, I, don't, I don't ever want to be put on a pedestal or be tagged as, you know, a hero of any kind. I think the only thing that I have, I think, started to realize is that I had to take on a posture of learning to recognize what I didn't know. And I had to listen to black men and black women and people of color to teach me. And, and I think there's a posture of learning that is so important because, you know, I think for most of us, and I've gotten where I don't trust leaders. I don't trust any leader who says I've never changed my mind. <laughs> I trust leaders who say, oh, yeah, I used to. Now I, you know, because in, in my mind, when they say that, it shows that they can learn, they can grow, they can improve, they can move, they can evolve. And somewhere in our constructs in Christianity, especially, we think we're supposed to decide something. We can never change our mind. If you change your mind, that means you're weak or you're, you're not a good leader. The best leaders, I think, going forward in the next decade, politicians, pastors, in any sector you're talking about are going to be leaders who learn how to learn from people who aren't like them. 
And and the only other thing I'll say with that is once that becomes your 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 style or your habit of leadership, I think that sets you up to understand, you know, in a culture that I think is shifting and moving what it means to lead. I don't I don't think you can lead if you don't take a posture of learning. And somewhere in the context of this, I think that's an important role to kind of assume and make sure that we're doing. So good. Sam, given that our audience is primarily a white audience and the hope is that we encourage um, more people to lean in and, and just learn um, from others who are different, what would your biggest piece of advice be or just your biggest piece of encouragement? Yeah, I think that there are two things that I love to leave us with today in terms of, you know, in response to this question. I think that likability and the ability to like versus the ability to love mm. is very important. Yeah. <laughs> For instance, I, I think what this is something that I've seen a lot in black leaders and white leaders and, and, and a lot of people trying to engage in this conversation. Um, they've chosen, I've seen a lot of people that have chosen to love, but they've not chosen to like. Mm. And I really like white people. <laughs> so, we've we've talked about it. You like old white people, Sam. What'd you say? Do you like old white people? I, I want to know. I, look, I don't like every white person, but I mean, you if you're asking me if I like you, yes. <laughs> you're one of his favorites. Right. But I do, like, I genuinely, I mean, if we put politics and all these other things aside, I genuinely, like, white people, and, and this is not all, right, but many of the ones I've been in relationship with, there are some similarities across the white context uh, that are things that are like, oh, I really like that, right? Like, the way that you think, right, you go a minute, go intellectual first before feeling, there's a sense of this, the things that black people are good at primarily that white people aren't and vice versa, right? And, and, and I, but I really like white people. And so because of that, it's, I think when I engage in conversation, they can tell. Yeah. And so now we can have a dialogue and I would flip it on its head and, 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 and ask white people the same in reverse. Yeah, that's good. I, mm -hmm. I, my son-in-law said this to me several years ago. He said, I grew up in a church that gave me permission to love my neighbor. They just never gave me permission to like my neighbor. That's, that's really good. And, and it's true. Somewhere in the context of this generation, they're saying, no, 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 no. I want to like my neighbor, too. Yeah. Don't make them the enemy. Don't make them bad. You know, I, because in the context of that, now think about this. It's our differences, right? It's our differences that give us the platform to demonstrate what unconditional love really is like. If we both like the same things and we're both alike and we both decide we're going to go listen to a Whitney Houston song because we both like it, <laughs> there's not really a demonstration there of unconditional love. But when Sam says to me, riding down the road, let's listen to an Elvis song, I know that Sam is saying to me, he loves me, because in that moment, he's using my my one thing that's different than him as a platform to demonstrate <laughs> to me he cares about me. I mean... The point is, it's our differences that become the platform to demonstrate real love, right? There was a big, there yeah. was a big day. I remember when Reggie pulled up and he said, "Have you heard this song?" And it was Post Malone. <laughs> <laughs> what? And I said, "What? Like, how do you?" He was like, "I like this," <laughs> but it it was a real moment. Where it was like, okay, again, it it transitioned from just I'm. Um, it's not obligation. Oh. Yeah, it's enjoyment. I really enjoy. You know, and many of us, I think what what keeps our relationship going is not just the justice work, but we really like being around each other. There's jokes, there's music, there's food. We connect. And so I would just encourage if to a predominantly white audience, what's one or two things that you can find in a black friend that you like? Not because you have to, but because you want to. And I think from that place, things will, the conversations will come easier. The second thing I want to say, and then, and Reggie's going to go off on this one because me and him talk about this all the time. 
and I'm done. This is my final, this is my hoorah. <laughs> we have to exist, we have to create, I think, going forward, a third category. The first and the second aren't working. <laughs> okay. And the third category for me is I want to be able to to chase a good economy and care about the poor. I want both to exist at the same time. And You're right now, politically, right, politically. And it seems like I have to choose either I care about the economy or I care about the poor and let the economy. And it's like, no, I think there has to be a place where both can live. And I think in the race conversation, and this is where it gets sticky. And this was a challenge for me when I had a breakdown this summer, which I don't know if I called you, Jen or Rich. You did. I did. Okay. When I broke down in the middle of the riots and I was, I said, I'm done. <laughs> I remember I called Reggie. We all had a breakdown within a three week period. Yeah. It was a I said, I'm just out of here. It was first, Sam. What'd you say? Yours was the first breakdown. I was the first. I think mine was the second. <laughs> and I think both of you were like, and a lot of my black friends, they were like, hey, it, it's, <laughs> you can't. Don't I remember Reggie yelling, you can't get out of the fight. <laughs> Don't leave <laughs> me. <laughs> but there was this moment, and I, this is where I was challenged when I got over my breakdown. Um, in the race conversation, the truth and grace have to be able to live in the same in the same boat. And for me, what I believe the Lord challenged me on was true. He said, you got grace and you have a version or you, you have a percentage of truth. In other words, you're saying what you know most people can handle. Mm -hmm. But until you start to fully embrace the entire truth and communicate it, while you're also being grace-filled, in your communication, um, you're gonna be limited in the type of reconciliation work that I want you to be involved in. And that was one of the things that really came from Dr. King and a lot of the great freedom fighters that I've seen over the years, that they were grace-filled. I mean, I'm talking about the ones that really created change, not just the ones that made a lot of noise, and I'm not, I won't go down that road, <laughs> but the ones that actually moved the needle. They were extremely grace-filled. They, they, they had a sense of likability. There was a love present, but there was also unfiltered truth Yeah. at the same time. Yes. And I think for us in, in this generation, you either land on one side or the other. You're really just heavy truth and you, this is what we got and this is what we got. And there's no grace or mm -hmm. you're extreme grace. Let's just let's just all get along. Let's just do this. And we don't want to deal with the truth. And so. I think the, the third category for me is uh, what I think we need to create. That's good. I, I would, I would respond to that for a second too. Um, because I think what you're saying and, and the word truth is always a strange word for some people because everyone thinks they own absolute rights to all the truth. Yeah. But the truth about the truth is that there are Democrats that are right about some things. There are Republicans that are right about some things. There, there are Baptists and Methodists and Catholics that are right about some things. So, I mean, when you start really looking, I, a guy told me in my 20s, he was an older leader. He said, no one owns absolute rights to all the truth. And, and so I, I think that's so important because I think we need to approach every conversation as if there's a percentage possibility that we're wrong. And when we approach every conversation that way, we have a posture of learning. And I, and I do think that we are called as Christians, and I, I wish we could somehow get our head around this, to rise above the political spectrum or range and go, let's hold both parties accountable yeah. to what love looks like on the front lines. Because somewhere in the context of this country, if racism becomes a Democratic issue or a Republican issue. It's bipartisan and we're not all addressing it. Yeah. And the truth is, it is a human issue that we should all be involved in and we should hold everyone accountable. And so don't let it get marginalized. Let's all stay above the fray and hold, hold everybody accountable for this issue. Yes. I, I have so many more questions for both of you. <laughs> so we might have to do a round two of this in a few months from now. Yeah, we do round two. But this has been so rich. The, the one last thing I want to say is 
because Sam was talking about the freedom fighters and some of the civil rights leaders who had that demonstration of, of love with grace. There's this one element that I think has come up that they didn't necessarily have to deal with as much as we're dealing with today. And that's this um, sensationalism and the, the robust media mechanisms that we have now that can really take truth and spin it in a way that you didn't mean it. Mm-hmm. And so I think part of maybe your what what the breakdown you had was I'm speaking truth and it's with grace, but the truth I just spoke just got spun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so there's this whole new element that we're having to pay attention to now where where we have to we really have to have a learned grace of the other side. We can't just give grace to somebody we don't know because we don't know the kind of grace they need. And and these uh, relational needs that we have bridging the gaps of separation are so critical because, Sam, you understand the grace needed in the white community because you've learned it. Mm-hmm. I'm starting to learn the grace needed to my friends of color because I have studied them, not intellectually, just in um, a a curious way of wanting, because I like them Mm -hmm. and wanting to know how to love them well. And so I I just want to leave us with that and say, um, this is hopeful for me. And when I'm able to have these conversations with both of you, I always walk away just feeling so encouraged. Um, because it, it is messy out there. Um, but I hope we can inspire more people to get into this type of journey where we're walking along together and learning one another because all of our lives are better when we do it. And and I would just add one simple thing to that. That's because we really are friends. I mean, when you say white friends or black friends, some people drop those terms because they have an acquaintance that they see every few weeks and they have a 10 minute conversation with them. Right. But if you look at their, you know, their text messages yesterday or today, those friends didn't show up. And, and I think that there is something to be said that this really does the work to change the world in this space really has to be done by genuine friendships that are committed to each other. And it's not like the three of us haven't disagreed number of times because we have, (laughs) But the friendship is greater and we're committed to that. And, and I think that's what you're saying, too. I think friend, the friendship has got to be the thing that trumps the opinions. Yes. Yes. Well, thank you guys for joining in. Thanks for all of your insight. And we look forward to hosting you again sometime within the year. Uh, thank you to the White Girl Awakening audience for tuning in. We hope that you... Um, found this to be helpful in your journey. Please continue to check in on us on Instagram and Facebook. We've got some exciting things coming up um, in the coming days ahead. Um, We've got some giveaways if you like my hat. So look forward to seeing you soon. Hey, it's Jen Barnes here, the founder of White Girl Awakening. And I just want to take the time to say thank you for joining our awakening session. Your commitment to a life of curiosity is so commended and celebrated here. We hope something that was said today resonated with you and maybe changed your heart as you continue to awaken in this journey. Don't forget to follow us on all social media at White Girl Awakening. And if you'd like to receive a free guide to awakening, text the word AWAKE to 94090. We'll see you next time. Thank you.